Welcome back to another edition of Chatterbox. Thanks for joining me again, and this week I'm going to be going over the process I get asked so much about, about making cosmetics. How does a concept arrive at shelf, and how do cosmetics get made? Now, I've done this product development job for Alamasca and for my own product range at House of Glamdolls, so I've really been close hand to how the labs work, the cosmetic scientists, and also how the creativity is infused with the latest technology to deliver products to shelf. So I thought I'd just give you a very simplified version of how that happens, because I think so many people are interested now with Instagram with white labeling and private labeling and some of the differences between those two things, but also just how you actually arrive at a final product that you can put your own brand on and sell. Now the first thing to remember is that the cosmetic design is exactly that, it's the design of a product. So you have to have a concept, you have to find what product you're trying to create, why you're trying to create it, what the gap in the market would be, why there is a need, where there is a desire to have a product that you can't currently find, or you feel could benefit the user by being simplified or more time efficient. So having a concept is really important and really tests you on many levels, your creativity, your kind of ability to know the industry, the direction of innovation, and keeping an eye to the sort of market on you know, on a whole to understand where the actual impulse is coming and the trend is coming through the industry. Now, innovation is really driven by manufacturers and by raw materials. The raw materials and the trade shows that present themselves to the industry suppliers are really where the innovation can be driven. So you have to be aware of the kind of concept of what is coming into the industry as raw materials to understand how you could take those elements and create products from those further down the line. So the concept is key, and making sure that you've got a clear audience and a target audience for your concept is really critical. Once you've actually got a concept, the first thing to do is to arrive at your first sample. You really need to just literally mix something up or find something you're trying to make that is the nearest equivalent or try and concoct something as a makeup artist, create a sample that the physical sample can get sent to a lab and the lab can really try and establish what you're trying to achieve and to try and create some sort of prototype from what you've sent them. Now this could be very varied and in the past I've sent things very very rarid. I've sent something like might be the handle of a spoon for a colour inspiration or it could be a ribbon. There's infamously Chanel was created from a dusty sort of ribbon when they did Rouge Noir. And I think scurrying through sort of haberdashers and vintage things is really the first way that some sort of ancient concept or retrospective concept is brought forward and modernised. But it doesn't have to be the case. It could be something futuristic and literally something that you're adamant you haven't seen before and a great concept and a creative idea that you want to start the sample and the first sample from. So once you've got a concept, you really want to arrive at your first sample, something physical the lab can work from, to understand what you're trying to benchmark, and from that they can really analyse what the next steps would be. A benchmark could be considered by the lab in terms of the texture you're providing, the shade, the exact colour you're looking for, what type of packaging would this product be created into, you know, that's not only the actual component, the actual pot, but also what type of outer packaging are you considering? Is there something very sort of elaborate, like origami-style folded packaging, or is it just something very straightforward and just an empty box that the product will sit in? At the point that the benchmark is being created and you've got texture examples, shade examples, packaging examples, you really should be setting a target cost of what you really want to be paying for this product when it's created. And from that you really start working out your retail pricing very initial and early on because you really want to understand what the difference will be between what you're actually paying for this product and what it will be for sale at. So this is important that you consider that carefully at the beginning and set yourself some target costs. 
once you've got the benchmark and you've got these things, they go to the lab and the lab then takes that analysis and starts to provide you some examples of what they feel would actually work, what they could create, and take your design to the next stage. And at that point, you would really receive back your sample as a prototype. When the prototype arrives with you, and particularly as a makeup artist, this is a really critical stage of the concept shelf process for me, because it really is the first chance I get to see if the actual product I imagined is actually transpired into the product it's become and that I have in front of me. It really is at that stage that you really want to test the product for its effectiveness to make sure that it's exactly how you thought it would be in terms of its pigment level or its payoff or lay down and is it easy to use, are you satisfied with the way it's performing, I generally test it by running it under water, I try and remove the product, I try and blend the product, I try different types of brushes, I try sponges, fingers, I give samples to friends to get feedback, I do blind testing which means that I give it to people without them having any concept of what the product is, without any ability to kind of prejudge it, and see what their results and what their findings are and what they think about it in terms of how it looks, how it performs, how it smells even. Aroma and fragrance is a critical part of a product's success. So many people are really put off of a product by heavily fragranced products. I mean, for me, that is Chanel always. I'm put off by how heavily fragranced those products are. I love the brand, but the fragrance is just too heavy for me. So whether you want the product to be unfragranced or fragranced or have an aroma, would be a decision at the prototype stage too. There's currently a lot of trend for things to smell like chocolate or peaches or biscuits or vanilla. And I think that, you know, that gives you some sort of subliminal message that while using this thing, you're getting a treat or a delight or some sort of candy effect. I don't think that's always a way that I approach it. But I think once you've got a prototype in front of you, it's the first sort of visual clue to are you really going to see this product as a final product or is it starting to fall down? If it's not quite there and it's not quite successful and it hasn't quite got the payoff or it hasn't met your expectations, you've really got to have the credibility to say, no, this is not what I want and this is not going to be acceptable to the audience and to myself. So essentially at that point, you could either accept it or reject it. Infamously, I mean, I've rejected many formulas over the years which have just not met the standard and sent them back and back many times to arrive at something before you'd even see it at retail. But the key thing here is it really is a team effort between your vision and also the chemists and the cosmetic scientists trying to reveal that and release that vision you have into an actual physical product. And it's a very difficult process to get two people or a team of people aligned exactly and specifically to arrive at a common goal. If you really aren't happy with the product, it can then go back to the lab. And remember, there are so many labs around the world. If one lab can't achieve it, it could be that another team can. But you want to try and bond yourself with a lab that gives you consistency and a really good process so that you get on par with them and they understand and you understand each other's needs and find a mutual path to these designs. But if it's not successful at this stage, you can reformulate it, add more pigment, take pigment away, change the payoff, change the texture, and maybe it just could be something as simple, because it's not only as the formula has to be correct, but the shades you've sent have to be correct, so you have to do formula matches to make sure that the texture is exactly how you want it. And also the shades have to be identical to what you've actually provided. So at this stage you would actually be looking at what you sent versus what comes back to make sure that the shades are identical to your vision and to make sure that you've got those filed for reference going forward. Those are considered benchmarks and those become sample shades that would be consistent every time a new product batch is made. Eventually, after a process of two and backwards forwards to the laboratory to make sure that you've all kind of found the common ground and you're happy with the formulation and the shade matching, 
you would arrive at the prototype and that is now signed off as your batch sample. So at that standard, you would actually create a filed sample that would be kept on file by the lab so that each time they make another batch or product, it would actually always be consistently the same colour. I hope this is finding you know interest for you and it's not too elaborate. I'm trying to keep this quite simple for you because it is an elaborate process. It is something that generally goes over about up to 52 weeks or even longer in time, so it can take about a year. But I get so many questions about it, I thought it would be good to break it down and give you some understanding of how in-depth it is and how much work goes into releasing a product. It's not just kind of copying something and sending it out and making it in China and then popping it onto the internet. There is a big process and it is a design cycle that you have to consider when making cosmetics to truly make them with authenticity and credibility, not just completely clone and copy things left, right and centre. That isn't this type of process. So once you've actually got the prototype and you've now got all the formulation and shade and you've got your set sample ready, you're pretty much good to go and sign it off. Now you've actually signed off your prototype, you're now committing to actually making the product. So you've got to start understanding what is that target cost of the thing you've signed off going to be and how much should you retail that product for to try and regain that product sale and also to make some sort of profit as a business. So you're setting your retail registered price and you've got to think about your global prices if you're more than just UK based, if you're going to sell in the US or Australia or sell overseas and you have to look at the global pricing structure that you feel that you will give that product. So that can be quite elaborate and considered and you have to look at the comparative market to understand what your product would be you know, selling for. And also you've got to consider that as a professional makeup artist brand you're often going to be required to offer discounts or student discounts which can really cannibalise any profit margins. And so therefore you've got to understand that with small retail brands or small innovative Instagram brands, it's very difficult initially to set up offering free shipping and offering all these different incentives to get customers to buy or give them heavy discounts because essentially you just can't afford to as a small brand without heavy backing. To set yourself up is very challenging and very difficult. And so setting the retail pricing strategy at this point is really, really a key thing because you've got to understand how much it costs, how much it's selling for and how much this cycle that you're getting involved in is actually going to challenge you and how much you're set up for success with distribution or with you know being an influencer you can channel those things much faster if that's the process of your Instagram sort of brand you can move things through distribution much quicker than traditional makeup artists. The prototype now is ready to really undergo a series of tests it goes back to the lab to have a stability test and a compatibility test. Stability testing really is about seeing is the product stable and fit for purpose, or is it going to separate, split or curdle. If you think about cooking, you've got to make sure that things don't go into an unstable formulation or they separate or they part ways. So you've got to make sure that the formula that the chemists have created is a stable one, and this is stability testing, and it's a series of many weeks and tests and recorded information to make sure the products are monitored and make sure that they're going to be good to go. They would also do microbial tests to make sure that it's not harboring bacteria or growing any bacterial fungus or anything like that. So there's a lab process that I won't elaborate on, but it's a very technical process to ensure that the product is stable. The other process that would happen at this point is compatibility testing, and this is to make sure the formulation is suitable to go into the packaging that you've actually decided to use, and it's not swelling or shrinking or cracking, and make sure the product likes the actual pot you're putting it in. Now, I can think of many cosmetics out there that haven't really had good compatibility tests. I can find products on many of the high street stores where I could look at a component and I can see a shrinking product or I can see a cracking eye gel product or an eyeliner that is cracking or splitting in the pot. 
And that generally means it's not airtight or hasn't had successful compatibility testing. It really shouldn't exist. If the compatibility testing is successful, those things shouldn't arrive at retail. And that would indicate generally a product has been accelerated or rushed through without the sufficient testing that it would require to eliminate those problems from the final product. And at that point, you really can do a quality assessment of what you're providing and the ethics of the product and the actual lab that make it are really like a security for you making a manufacturing products that you're going to arrive at a very stable and compatible product that will give no end user problems because no one wants to make a cosmetic that comes back to you returned with faults or technical issues because generally the product should have been monitored and made more efficiently from the offset. The stability and compatibility tests should give you a really good indication after about 20 weeks whether your product is going to be good to go and at that point your quality assessment can provide you with an approval so you would be good to see that the coasting forward of the product is going to be successful. At that point you're pretty much in a good place to start thinking about the cosmetic formula ingredients and starting to work on your graphic design and your artwork to make sure that you've now got the box ready and all the other componentry parts ready for your product to marry up with when you get to the fact of assembly and distribution. So this is the time to really stamp your branding onto the artwork, to create your innovation, to create your marketing strategy and how you're going to market the product. And then while the actual cosmetic is actually going through all of the chemistry checks and tests and all of the things that are required legally and also ethically, it is important that at this point you've got your branding to start to visualise into a design concept. When you look at the reverse of a cosmetic product, maybe on the outer box, you'll see something called the INCI, the I-N-C-I, and it's basically a cosmetic ingredient listing, which is done in a order, which means that the first ingredient is the predominant ingredient, and it shows you exactly what's in the product, and this is a legal requirement that must go on the box. The INCI is supplied by the lab, and it's confidential, and then once that's actually going onto your artwork, you can see as a consumer exactly what was put into the product to check for any allergies or any things that you want to check, example, ethics or vegan, or if it has any animal derivatives or products, or any silicones or any parabens or any of the things which go into it, or sulfates, you can see that on the inky list, it's very clear. So as a designer, you are really consciously making sure that the ingredient list is ethically matched to your branding. And if you're, for example, a vegan brand, you would obviously make sure that you've got no animal sourced ingredients or animal derivatives and that that ethically fits your brand positioning. And so many of the brands now with younger audiences are going towards veganism or going towards sulfate free or phosphorus free or any of these different phosphates or, you know, anything that there is a challenge on. These issues are now able to be removed and a branding can decide its position on its ingredient listing. I hope that isn't too technical, but essentially at this point, it's really good to know that when you do buy a cosmetic, you can literally look at the back of the box to see what's in it and really analyse that efficiently to understand if it's going to be beneficial for you or what it's actually going to do for you as a consumer. Obviously, the artwork and the graphic design time, all of these things affect the price. So your pricing strategy is going to be consistently and effectively challenged all stages through this as there are incremental costs that need to be considered and absorbed by your price. But once you've actually got your final product, you know you know that the product is coming towards the final packaging, you've then got to start working on its legal registration for sale per market. So you've got to understand where are you selling this and they need to be registered into those markets to be legally available for sale. And at that point, you would be able to then consider your marketing strategy and where in the world you're trying to reach, which audience you're trying to reach with your products. Obviously, social media makes this now much smaller because we have such a huge vision in that platform. So when a brand goes to social media, the world is watching. 
You do get one final sample, which is pre-production. So just before they do the mass production, the laboratory or the person manufacturing the products will check that everything is good, the packaging is exactly how you want it, the product's exactly how you want it, and it gives you an opportunity to visualize and final sign off everything before the machinery starts and mass production goes ahead. So at that point, you really can visualize what you're going to be creating. It's in front of you. You've got a finished pack. You've got a finished product. You've got everything final. And it's up to you to then, as a designer, say, I confirm with this product it's approved and go to mass production. And essentially, that's it. You've now pressed the button on mass production and you'll be awaiting for that delivery of your products, which will be sent over by ship or by sent over by air, depending where they're coming from and then you will be looking at the freight, getting that in as landed goods, coming into the airport and delivered to you to warehouse or store, ready for selling on your website, e-commerce, you know, whether you've got an Etsy shop, an Instagram account shop, or whether you're doing it as a retail shop or as a pop-up, that's up to you now to take the products ahead and deliver your products to shelf. So merchandising your products ready for sale for the consumer to discover your new product and the cycle can begin again to actually create your next product. It's a huge process, a huge cycle, very interesting, very exciting, and there are so many rewards at each stage. But one of the things I would share with you, you can get right up to about 20 weeks and a product fails, and literally it just isn't working, the chemistry is not working, and you've lost 20 weeks and you've got to go right back to the beginning again. So as a concept-to-shelf idea, it is a design process, and even the best designs can get to a point where they just don't succeed and they have to be scrapped. So next time you're shopping for cosmetics, I hope this has given you a real insight into the whole process behind that from the cosmetic designers and developers that create the products and through to white label and private labelers that help people release the dreams and visions in products to give you an understanding of how that works. The key thing is that at the moment, most people from Instagram brands are white labeling. They're literally approaching a cosmetic company that white labels, changing the logo, changing the branding, and reproducing that product with their branding on, which is great because it gives you a very easy, low investment way to create products. But a stage up from that is actually to private label and originate everything from scratch, and that is more costly. And essentially, when you're looking at creating your own product, you really have to have a huge budget to be able to create a masterpiece component. So, for example, if you're creating a lipstick that is very, very stylized and very, very unique to you and very independent with its molding, that process is called tooling, and even that can take a year to create the actual mold and the product and all the prototypes to get your packaging into production to give you your personal bespoke and you know exclusive design. It's so expensive to do. Most brands, even very big brands, tend to take stock items because it's more commercially available and it's more cost-effective and it's just more appropriate in many circumstances. But the key thing is that when you are private labelling, there is that difference in availability for you to customise every decision, which isn't yours when you white label. White label is literally click, pick off the shelf, change the logo, hot sticker or put a foil on, and then essentially deliver that product again. But remember, if you white label, anybody could get that product, and you're cloning the same thing over and over again. Private labelling is giving you more choice, more exclusivity, more originality, and making sure that your product is true to your own personal vision and not the same as a competitive brand. And there you have it, concept to shelf, cosmetic design ideas coming through the whole cycle of design and going through to production and mass production and then eventually going to shelf for you to visually merchandise and actually store and create your own brand. It's a very, very rewarding cycle and once you've obviously got your products you can then launch them onto Instagram, launch them into your makeup school, whichever your vehicle is, 
for showing the audience what you've created and again you're then based on looking at the results, looking at the feedback, looking at the audience reaction and understanding how successful that product was and learning from that. So with every product there's a huge series of learnings where you hit the mark, where you failed, where audiences didn't understand your message or where they absolutely loved things that you didn't think they would but they've actually superseded your expectation and things which are very much in their hierarchy of needs are aligned at that point for your next product design. And I'd say anybody making cosmetics is incrementally better with time. Once they've made one, product two is better than product one and they incrementally get better and better. The one thing I don't really agree with is when cosmetic brands launch something, they get an audience excited, then deliberately remove it from distribution and discontinue it just to bring back another one to get them to then buy the product again with the slogan of new and improved and enhanced pigment and all of those things. That's really just a bit of a dodgy marketing trick and something I don't support. I think you really should ethically put the best products out there with the best intention and the best cosmetic ingredients and ethics that you can at the price you can afford and then work in a much more sustainable ethical manner. But obviously the cosmetic industry is very, very vast and very, very wide and there are huge giants in there amongst the small indie Insta brands. What I would say is really try and support small brands because personally I know how much is invested not only you know in terms of monetary investment but time investment and considered design investment and so when you do see small brands as a person that has one of those small brands I really reach out to everybody to say just support the small brands over the big ones because they really are making massive choices and massive differences to give you those independent thinking products out there. So when you're buying brushes or when you're buying cosmetics, make sure you think of those things alongside the big brands and try and support the small brand retailing and the small brand design and creativity. My product of the week this week is a massage candle. One of the things I can share with you as you mature and you get slightly older skin is that you do find your skin getting drier. So this is really something for those experiencing maturity in the skin, dehydration, drying, and a way to manage that. You know, there are so many moisturizers on the market that I was looking at other options, and one of the things I stumbled on this week was the Janjira Art of Siam Massage Candle. Its fragrance is really, really beautiful. It's grapefruit and tangerine, so quite citrus. And what I really like about this massage candle is that you burn the candle, and the candle has like a jug pouring spout, so that once the oil and the essential oils are melted completely, you can then pour those off into your hands so you have heated oil, which would traditionally be used for massage for body, but it's a really great facial massage. So the warm oil can be absorbed efficiently into your skin, making it super nourished. It gives it a great supple ability. It's mixed with soybean oil and coconut oil, which protects and softens the skin. So essentially, if you're using this warm oil, you can use that as a final kind of hydration level to trap in any like transepidermal water loss you may be experiencing to make sure your water levels are hydrated in your skin and giving you subtlety. And one of the things I loved about this is the fact that not only does it give you a great aroma in your flat or in your bathroom or in the shower wherever you're having this candle burning, but it really does give you a multi-purpose oil on hand. And it's another approach to using an oil rather than using a dropper and something that I'll be now regularly using. So burning the massage candle gives you that ability to free up some essential oils, heating them, warming them, and then using that as a facial massage, my tip for the week. Watching episode two of Glow Up this week, it was really lovely that so many of the House of Glam Doll students or people who have been to the school spotted our Chroma World Creative Base products on the TV show. 
and sent me lovely messages about, wow, I can't believe the products are on there, I'm so excited, or the products I've got are on TV, and all of these different things. And when it came to the challenge, the people in the challenge didn't even use them particularly, they used a little bit of the blue, but they chickened out and just literally went for safe options at their detriment. I think the judges really penalised the fact that given abandonment and given creativity and five minutes to really unleash, that the contestants just froze and went very, very safe. So I think we can all identify with that. When somebody says, go creative, the first thing you immediately do is shut down and become uncreative and paralysed with fear. So I think the moral of that story was to sympathise with the contestants, but to really think, you know, when you unleash your creativity, you've got to have a lot of scope to pull into and to be able to delve into. So the more creative things you unleash yourself and expose yourself to, the more you'd have on tap and reservoir to do those type of challenges. So look out for anything that inspires you creatively. Creative bases, colours you're not used to, colours that are placed in places you wouldn't normally place them, giving you a lot of abandonment to unleash your creativity and express yourself. And I think this week's episode of Glow Up was a brilliant one. Everyone loves Harry Potter and it was great to see them challenged by prosthetics. But again, we look forward to see how each contestant does every week as we follow the success and journey of everybody on Glow Up. We've had another busy week in the studio this week and at House of Glam Dolls we're preparing ourselves for another international visit. This time we have a lovely group coming from Italy, so I'm just spending some time getting their creative lessons ready for when they join us shortly, and we'll keep you posted on how they do. So internationally we have so many different varied students from around the world, and it really is one of my joys getting to teach people with different backgrounds, different cultural exposure, and different ideas and concepts, and creatively it challenges all of us to give ourselves an exchange of ideas, and that's the art of makeup in its purest form. So I'm looking forward to the Italian students joining us, and obviously on the podcast, you'll see how they get on in the next few coming weeks as they come forward through the school and attend their London experience. So what are you all finding out there? What sort of products are you liking? What sort of things are you finding in social media and Instagram? How did you all cope with the Instagram meltdown this week when we had an Instagram, you know, trauma where everything was shut down and everyone had their real world and their real lives for a few minutes and a few hours? And it was really entertaining to watch how everybody went into mass panic about my Instagram's not working, when reality outside of Instagram, everything was ticking and functioning as normal. So calm down, everybody. Social media is an outlet. We all love it. But there's world out there to explore. You know what? Go to a gallery. Go to the National Gallery. Go to your local gallery. Go look at some paintings. Inspire yourself. Step out of social media for a minute and everything's going to be wider and it'll be there when you come back. So the key thing this week was it really reminded us that there is a world out there of creativity to explore and that we could all do better from a little less screen time. Well, that's about it for this week. Thank you for joining me again at Chatterbox and thank you for the loyal viewers and listeners that keep coming back to see what's going on in our Chatterbox pod ramblings. I hope you're enjoying them and make sure that you send me an email or some contact via social media, any outlet of messaging, to be able to let me know how you're getting on with it, whether you're enjoying it, what we should do more of, what you'd like to hear about and what sort of things we can help you with. Chatterbox is really a platform to really exchange ideas, it gives you a platform of experience to share, and it's really about open communication and creativity. I love hearing from you, so please keep those communications coming forward. And I hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of Chatterbox.